Welcome to the Notion Club Podcast. I'm Ian Duncan. Winter is almost over, but perhaps there is time enough for one more fireside chat. Today I'll be offering up an essay on the controversial topic of masking, particularly with regard to its consequences for children. This is of urgent concern for me, since I have three young children of my own. But it seems to me that any cognizant human being ought to wonder, after the year we've just had, whether or not being fully human is a cause worth defending. Is having a face important? What might some of the consequences be if we continue to surrender our faces to the dictates of safety-obsessed bureaucrats? And is it really the prerogative of the state to tell us when and in what situations and under how many layers we may keep our faces. Thank you for joining me for episode 9 of season 2 of The Notion Club. My wife and I have made a pact of sorts. We will not leave our 17-month-old son in the church nursery if the volunteers that week are wearing masks. Even though it will essentially mean holding a wild armadillo in my arms for the entirety of the service, I can't bear the thought of leaving my son in the company of strangers without faces. I have seen how quickly he returns the smile of seemingly anyone, winning friends across crowded rooms, and I have seen the terror in his eyes, searching for a reassuring smile and finding nothing but tall, blank beings without mouths or noses. Psychologists and researchers have long acknowledged the significance of faces to developing children. Even newborns, hours old, have been found to recognize their own mothers. Other experiments have demonstrated that crawling infants can be coaxed across an illusory visual cliff merely by seeing, on the opposite side, their mother's reassuring smile, and they can be warned away from the same cliff by an expression of fear and apprehension. But 2020, and now 2021, the years of the coronavirus outbreak, are when we have apparently decided, as educated adults, to throw everything we know about childhood development out the proverbial window. The overall attitude of healthcare professionals seems to be that, unfortunately, children will just have to suck it up. One researcher suggests children will just have to get better at, quote, reading eyes, end quote, instead of faces, as though our life with masks was like an anime film, consisting of a series of close-ups of shrouded ninjas with melodramatically furrowed brows. Here's a direct quote you can find on the website of UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, quote, Remember that younger children rely more on visual communication cues like smiling, so practice smiling with masks on with them, 
and consider how your tone of voice can help. You could also put a mask on a favorite stuffed animal with them to help masks appear more familiar." End quote. In other words, globalists want you to know that you can try harder to smile through your mask. And if it helps make masking seem more normal, you can simply eradicate other, even play-pretend, faces in your child's life. Meanwhile, Toronto-based child development and parenting specialist Karen Irwin, quoted in an article by CTV News, helpfully suggests, quote, parents spend time wearing masks around their children, such as while reading bedtime stories, so the kids can better recognize emotions verbally than through facial expressions. She added that parents may have to speak more slowly while their facial features are covered. Quote, that's going to take a listening skill that kids might not have yet, especially young children. So spending time with your kids wearing your face mask as a parent and really exposing them to that at home is going to help teachers in the learning environment, end quote. This self-proclaimed parenting expert wants you to mitigate the current spike in cultural insanity by incorporating more of that insanity into your nightly routine. Your children will just have to get used to living in a world without faces. Other experts are quick to remind us how resilient children are after all. And indeed, our species has weathered far worse. Perhaps we'll eventually grow antennae to brush against each other, or secrete pheromones that will more safely communicate our feelings during pandemic years. Do you see what is happening here? It has finally happened that we have so removed ourselves from the intention of God in being human that we no longer recognize our own inalienable rights. What is precious to us? and what therefore constitutes an intolerable outrage. Were we designed with faces for incalculably significant reasons, or are our bodies merely the haphazard result of evolutionary processes, adapting to a changing environment over millions of years? In one of these worldviews, the human visage is sacrosanct, and in the other, it is entirely disposable. Is it important to have a face? I have to restrain myself from shouting that last line or resorting to all caps to convey how angry it makes me. Thankfully, I'm skilled at expressing my emotions verbally, a knack without which I may have to resort to the use of, quote, picture charts and feeling cards, end quote another brilliant suggestion from the aforementioned child development expert. What I can only imagine implies that children at statistically zero risk of COVID-19 should sit in a classroom with their faces covered, holding up smiley faces and frowny faces drawn on paper plates pasted to popsicle sticks because the so-called adults in their worlds have gone insane. And because those adults, who bear the God-given responsibility of protecting children, have grown so craven, they can no longer insist on a child's right to be human. 
It is beyond time to call our culture's masking fetish evil and damnable nonsense. Should we be surprised, though? Can we really be shocked that a culture that tolerates, promotes, and even celebrates the murder of children in the womb also subjects children outside the womb to newly invented types of cruelty? Should we be stunned that the onus of our societal meltdown over coronavirus has been left to be borne by children? Children who have the most to lose during their formative years and whose economic, social, and educational futures are being squandered by adults who merely want to feel safe? Another thing sociologists have always known, prior to 2020 at least, was that the education children receive is statistically proportionate to their quality of life and even how long they will live, lessening the chances, for instance, that they will succumb to the ravages of poverty, addiction, and suicide that befall the uneducated at a greater rate. According to a study published by the Journal of the American Medical Association in November, quote, Missed instruction during 2020 could be associated with an estimated 13.8 million years of life lost. These findings suggest that the decision to close U.S. public primary schools in the early months of 2020 may be associated with a decrease in life expectancy for U.S. children, end quote. Neither was the shutdown simply the lesser of two evils. Some might suppose leaving schools open would have resulted in an increase in COVID infections and an even greater loss of life. But the Journal of American Medical Association's study found that, quote, comparing the full distributions of estimated years of life lost under both schools open and schools closed conditions, the analysis observed a 98.9% probability that school opening would have been associated with a lower total years of life, life lost than school closure. The article goes on, quote, The public debate has pitted school closures against lives saved or the education of children against the health of the community. Presenting the trade-offs in this way obscures the very real health consequences of interrupted education, end quote. It is time to reject the intrusion of safetyism, which only exacerbates crises for political ends rather than shedding upon them the cool light of reason. Let's face it, a government which cannot profitably conduct a postal service has no business telling its citizens how to raise their children. It is simply not part of the federal government's constitutional mandate to inflict upon its people a core of safety-obsessed bureaucrats. Neither is it the prerogative of government to delimit the amount of risk its citizens may undertake in their exercise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nothing I have told you thus far is a secret. None of it is a conspiracy. Everyone in America with a smartphone and the ability to read can peruse the articles I have cited. I welcome any and all comers to see for themselves that data, let alone common sense, 
does not support the self-destruction of a society, the facial oppression of its people, or the cruel neglect of its children. Put bluntly, COVID-19 does not warrant this type of reaction. Why then, one ought to wonder, do we continue to tolerate it? I am currently writing this in the food court of the Seattle airport where my flight has been canceled due to snow. For the past 24 hours, I have been subjected to the most mindless and draconian blather about masking and protecting ourselves. Over airport intercoms, I have listened to what sounds like a parody of the cult classic Airplane movie, only in this new version, the red zone versus blue zone argument has been replaced with a soul-crushing repetition of the federal agencies pitted against my facial orifices, each one of which, each time I hear it, gets added to the others like an additional layer of woolen uniform through which I must attempt to breathe. I have had little ditties repeated to me again and again, reminding me to sip, snack, and put that mask back. I have watched as a mother chided her two sons, perhaps three and five years old, to don their masks as soon as they had finished eating, even though they were only sitting with members of their own family dozens of feet from anyone else. On board the planes, the Biden administration's new restrictions on travel have lent a greater degree of imperiousness to messages delivered by flight attendants, who feel free to lend their own verbal emphasis to certain dreadful syllables. Whereas it was once a matter of local ordinance or the policy of a particular airline, I and my fellow travelers are now reminded that the masking order is a federal law, and, rather cryptically, that violations may be punished accordingly. The same federal law that used to concern itself chiefly with trade monopolies, illegal transfer of firearms, heroin smuggling, and kidnapping, is now here to lend its preponderance to the suppression of mouth-breathers and free-facers of all kinds. Interestingly, the same United States government that is constantly maligned by progressive thinkers for its historic suppression of African Americans, its decimation of Native American culture, its internment of Japanese Americans in prison camps during World War II, its resistance to women's suffrage, its perpetuation of unjustified wars, even its banning of our national pastime, alcohol, during Prohibition, is the same government now stepping in to decide how freely and through how many layers and through what kind of material its citizens may breathe and in what context they may be allowed to show their faces in public and soon, perhaps, even what types of experimental vaccines they must inject into their bodies. In other words, we moderns are quick to recognize the blind spots of our predecessors, even to condemn them for their barbarism and lack of sophistication. But when it comes to our own cultural zeitgeist, the hottest iteration of which is currently an irrational obsession with safety, we assume it is we who are on the right side of history, 
and we seldom imagine that some better informed we is yet to come, a we who will find our maxims preposterous, our assumptions offensive, and our cultural arrogance insufferable. One might object that plenty of Americans, perhaps even the majority, are not true believers in the COVID hysteria, certainly not like the mother I overheard in the airport. Most are only complying in an attempt to carry on with their lives as normally as possible. They roll their eyes and they go along to get along. They are not unreasonable people. They understand that there is a real disease afoot, but neither are they particularly worried about their own chances of survival. They are a long-suffering people, and although the majority of them loathe masking, they think of it as a mere nuisance and believe, somewhat naively, that once cases have subsided, the government will relinquish the orders it has enacted under the pretext of a health crisis. What these good people do not seem to remember, or perhaps it is only that they do not wish to dwell upon it, is that it has been precisely through the assumption of emergency powers that the federal government has grown, not by degrees, but by huge leaps during wartime, during the Dust Bowl, during the stock market crash, during the Depression, and now, not surprisingly, during the so-called coronavirus pandemic. Every additional intervention of our government sets a precedent for repeated and further intervention. Crisis is the growth hormone of government. Our founding documents, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights did give the government a certain limited mandate. Its delineated role was to secure borders, punish evildoers, and provide the opportunity for its citizens to enrich themselves by engaging in free commerce, unimpeded by foreign threats. But at every critical juncture, the government, seemingly with the best intentions, has pioneered new roles for itself, not just as protector, but as guarantor. If the price of wheat plummets, the government rolls out a subsidy for farmers. If a particular race is discriminated against, affirmative action. Pollution? Emission control standards. Auto deaths? Seat belts and airbags and child seats. Skyrocketing health care prices? Medicare for all. Triggered millennials? Hate crime enforcement and suppression of controversial speech. Coronavirus? Federally mandated mitigation measures. Some of these interventions are even a good idea. But with each new action, the government continues to reinterpret its role, insinuating itself more and more intimately into the personal decisions of its citizens. What began as a government benevolently attempting to keep people from starving to death ends with mothers telling their children to cover their nasty little faces. The problem is one of inevitable progression, like the growth of a cancer. The problem is that at some point, perhaps no one can say exactly where the line is, only that they will know when we have crossed it, the state that becomes everything to its citizens will essentially become more than a nanny 
it will become their god. The state that mitigates every crisis, that overturns every perceived injustice, that makes adjustment for every inequity, that guarantees not just equality of treatment but homogeneity of outcome. This is the state to which people pray, to whom they cry most fervently when anything goes awry. The chief problem with this, of course, is that when you examine the bona fides of our government, you very quickly ascertain that it is not very good at playing God. At the time of this recording, the great state of Texas has just lifted its mask mandate. One may begin to hope, perhaps with the natural optimism of winter ending and spring beginning, that case numbers will continue to decline, restrictions will continue to lift, life will at last return to normal, and this past year of hysteria and government overreach, our year without faces, will go down as a strange and terrifying anomaly in history. But even if that soon becomes the case, the question will remain why we allowed it, and even more disturbing, why we believed it. One hypothesis for the general acceptance of draconian masking orders is that people do not much care for their own faces. This is not to say that these very same people are not dedicated narcissists, lovers of self, living their lives in a manner which is, above all, self-concerned. I only mean to suggest that, apart from concerns over airborne particles of coronavirus, there must be something that feels right about covering one's face, perhaps in a similar way that it feels right, this side of Eden, to cover one's nakedness. One of the lies that must be dispelled immediately in order to understand what happened at Eden and what may, by extension, be happening in our own culture is to clear up the misapprehension of those who say original sin must have been sexual in nature since Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves before God returned to the garden. This view is helpfully perpetuated by Sunday school flannelgrams and illustrations in children's books which depict shrubbery growing eagerly to cover the bikini areas of our first mother and father. Critics maintain that the biblical text was only being discreet with all that bit about forbidden fruit, wink wink, and we all know what the real thing is that God hates so much. But, in fact, if the text is to be believed in its entirety, not just the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis, but also, for instance, the Song of Solomon, where a pair of newlyweds are encouraged to drink and imbibe deeply, then sex itself cannot be the original offense, unless God is a prude, and even that only sometimes, which turns out to be the very sort of rot that motivated a faulty understanding of original sin in the first place. What must really be happening, in the instance of Adam and Eve hiding their bodies from God, is that because of their disobedience, they did not want to be seen in their entirety, and therefore known by him from whom, quote, nothing is hidden, end quote, and before whom, quote, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, end quote. 
Hebrews 4.13. Even though Adam and Eve's first sin was not inherently sexual, although sin would come to pervade every area of life, they felt the need to conceal their bodies, and now it seems we do too. Some cultures, notably Muslim ones, have already extended the idea of appropriate coverage to include more or less the entirety of a person's body. Perhaps Americans are beginning to feel that a face is too private a thing to parade about in public. After all, living online has forced us to obsess over privacy. In the virtual world, one's identity, what we previously associated most closely with our faces, is something that must be protected lest it be stolen. Perhaps it is a vote of no confidence in the future of American public life that we believe we are better off hiding our faces from view, from contamination, from detection, from surveillance, from liability, from one of our many former lovers who might otherwise recognize us. Perhaps we have grown so accustomed to living and moving and having our being online where we see but are never seen that the exposure of public life no longer feels natural. Perhaps it is a subconscious manifestation of shame. Perhaps because of our many sins, we believe our faces deserve to be covered. Maybe it is because of abortion, or the lies we have spoken with our lips, or the images to which we have turned our faces, that we so readily assume the look of bad men robbing a stagecoach. In either case, we are sick. We might even quote First Fauci 3.23 and say that all are sick and have fallen short of the federally mandated mitigation requirements. We are all sick. We have been warned to the point of obsessive-compulsive paranoia that any of us might be sick, and that therefore we must all take precautions as though every one of us were in a constant and permanent state of illness. Even if we have already had coronavirus, we should still get the vaccine. Even if we have already had coronavirus and received the vaccine, we should still wear a mask, because even if we are not sick, we might have a virus particle lodged in our nostril. I am not making this up. And then we might potentially snort that tiny speck of coronavirus out upon some vulnerable and unsuspecting person, who would of course die immediately. And so, even then, after all the rituals we have been through, we have not succeeded in purifying ourselves, and must still consider ourselves sick. You might even say that all our mitigation efforts are as filthy rags. In a sane world, the government can only legitimately quarantine those who are sick. But if we are all sick, then none of us can protest. On the other hand, if all of us are sick, keeping to the very definition of illness and a pesky little thing called logic, none of us is sick. Sickness is simply the new normal. This doctrine of sickness, incidentally, parallels the up-and-coming ideology of anti-racism, as popularized by Robin DiAngelo's book White Fragility, 
in which white people learn that they are racist, even if they have never manifested any symptoms of racism. This is precisely the sort of narrative only accepted by a population that already considers itself guilty. Douglas Murray, in his excellent book, The Madness of Crowds, explores the fascinating idea that, as a society, we have rejected all aspects of Christian redemption and expurgation, but have clung to the reality of unresolved sin. In short, there is no longer a way out. We believe in the crime, but not the pardon, in guilt, but not forgiveness. The most urgent question for society, then, is not who can develop a cure for coronavirus, but who can purge our collective psyche of its stains? Who can heal the body of its diseases? Who can forgive us our sins? Who can restore society, cure fear of death, restore joy to children, grant permission to live again, depose tyrants, expose political power-mongering, restore the dignity of being human, and make showing our faces in public a collective delight? Who can restore the image of humanity to the beautiful thing intended before death and corruption and fear ruin everything? It is perhaps the supreme irony of a society that considers itself scientifically advanced that its direst problems can only be adequately addressed by a faith several millennia old. I will not say that Christ is more relevant now than ever, because he has always been supremely relevant. But this, our year without faces, has put us in a place to appreciate like never before our urgent need of him. He came to restore the image that was lost. His spirit is here to lift up the eyes of the downcast. And he is coming again to liberate his people from persecution and to take them to dwell in his very throne room where the only required coverings are robes of righteousness, where the shouts of the saints are unsuppressed, and where, with unveiled faces, they contemplate the Lord's glory.